0: Came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio
1: waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes
0: give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 6th of June. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. In this episode, we're speaking with Tommy Marshman about GPU based galactic plane surveys. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a university toxicology and pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer, and astrophotographer. And he's going to tell us what's up, Doc? what's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks, and he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So let's cross to Sydney now to speak with Tommy. Hello Tommy.
1: Hello Brendan how are you?
0: Very well thanks Tommy. Today we'd like to welcome Tommy Marshman an early stage researcher who is completing his master's of research at Macquarie University in Sydney Australia in conjunction with CAS, CSIRO astronomy and space science. Yep. So before we talk about your current research focus in your studies can you tell us where you grew up please Tommy and
1: Was science and space on your radar as a child? Yeah, Brendan, from an early age, I was quite interested in science. And I grew up in Gladstone, Queensland. And so I think I was lucky in the fact that my father was a curious individual. And he taught me and my brother to be curious as well. And there was quite a lot of interest in astronomy and stargazing growing up.
0: Very good. So could you tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change?
1: Yeah, sure. Growing up, I was madly interested in science, although as a child, I think it was more to do with chemistry just because of the pop culture images of, you know, the mad scientist with test tubes and uh, Bunsen burners and things like that. But as I grew in high school, I got more interested in physics and nuclear physics and space science and wanted to be an astronaut at one point. I was a bit despondent with the uh, chances of that being an Australian, but also had aspirations of being an action hero. So I ended up playing army man a lot and went in that direction for some time.
0: Okay, thanks, Tommy. So after your successful school career, you joined the army and stayed on for 17 years, during which time you got up close and personal with conflicts overseas. And you also went on a tertiary studies degree binge at a number of universities, both in Australia and the UK, in a huge range of areas from psychology to Arabic languages to international relations and security and risk management. Now, after the Army, you've been in business leadership and government services, and right now you're a postgraduate research student at Macquarie University in Sydney. A couple of questions, Tommy. What's it like transitioning back to being a student again after all of those years as a leader? And I'm looking at your CV here. It appears like a sudden quantum leap into astrophysics. Why astrophysics?
1: Yeah, I've uh, had quite an interesting career and yeah, quite a few transitions, as you said. So after school, I went to university and finished that. And while I was there, I joined the Army Reserves. And at the end, I transferred to the regular Army. Always been quite curious. So when I had the chance, I took a lot of different courses to follow my interests. and. As you say, seems like a quantum leap into physics, but always in the background, I was always interested in physics and those sorts of things. and I was completing a Master of Arts in politics and international relations. and I thought, once I finished this and I was initially planning on doing a PhD in international relations, I thought I'll follow my interest in physics and try and pursue some postgraduate studies in that. But I got to a point where I thought, why am I waiting to do that? And so I got online because my undergrad wasn't in science. I had to find something I could get into in postgrad without an undergrad. And that was the Swinburne Astronomy Online graduate certificate. And once I completed that, I matriculated into the master's and then into my current research master's because I need to produce some research so I can qualify for a PhD program.
0: Fantastic. So now you've acquired your Masters of Research Supervisors and you are researching the application of GPU-based pulsar search pipelines on a new Parks Galactic Plane survey. So let's pull that apart. To start with, can you tell our listeners what GPUs are and what search pipelines are? And while the park's dish is iconic and very well known, can you tell us about the Galactic Plane Survey, please, that you're doing? And and a lot of listeners will already know what pulsars are, but for some, you might begin by first telling us what pulsars are, please, Tommy.
1: Well... Firstly, on the uh, supervisors, I'd like to uh, thank you personally because it was through the Astrophys podcast that I actually found and met my supervisor, Shaddai, who did an interview with you, I think, last year? Yeah, Shaddai is great. Yeah, that's right. And so I listened to that and I thought, that is awesome. And I was just completing my uh, Master of Science with Swinburne, and so I contacted Sher, and, yeah, just started a conversation about getting into pulsar searching, and he helped me design my current project. I say help me, but it was largely his idea. That's awesome. So in terms of pulsars, they're fast-spinning neutron stars that emit radio pulses from their poles, and so like a lighthouse, as they spin around and strobe across the earth we can detect them with radio telescopes such as parks so in terms of my project with a lot of radio astronomy the the paradigm is that the the archive is the telescope so there's a lot of data sitting there and we just are developing new ways of going through the data to not only find what we know should be in there like pulsars but also things that we know should be in there that we can't see, like pulsar binaries and hopefully a pulsar black hole binary. But then further to that are the things that we don't even know we've discovered yet or don't even know that are there to discover yet. And that's one of the the exciting things about science. Fantastic. So in terms of my project... Because it's all converted to digital data, there's just so much of it. We need pipelines to not only automate the searching of it, but also computers to do it quickly. And so my project is to compare two current search pipelines for pulsars, one CPU-based, which is a central processing unit, which is the standard sort of computer you'd be familiar with, And another pipeline that is GPU-based, which is graphics processing unit, which allows a lot more data to be processed in parallel and was actually developed for video games and processing the high amount of information to get that sort of seamless and realistic graphics. But now they put them all together and use them in supercomputers to parallelize the processing of data, which speeds it all up.
0: Fantastic. Well, that's one solution to the big data problem.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Thanks, Tommy. So now we have a good idea of your general research. Can you tell us what questions can be answered by the research and studies that you're currently doing?
1: So I guess with my master's research, because it's only a small project, it's really just a Comparison of the output from the two different pipelines, GPU-based searching is inevitably going to be a lot quicker just because of the rate that the data can be processed in parallel. But what I'm looking at is to make sure that we get equivalent outputs and find the same things because there's no point having a faster search if it's a less thorough search or it's going to come up with a lot of false positives. And so moving forward for a bigger project would be looking at some of the more specific parameters in some of the more exotic binaries, such as a pulsar black hole binary that hasn't been found yet, but a lot of astrophysicists think of as the holy grail of astrophysics, just because of all the science that can be conducted through observing one.
0: Wow, like trying to find a needle in a haystack.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Okay, thanks, Tommy. Now, a master's degree involves working closely with your supervisors on your proposal or your
1: project. How does that work in your case? Well, in my case, I'm lucky in that I'm spoilt for supervisors because I've got three. So, because I'm working in conjunction with Macquarie University and CSIRO, I have an academic supervisor. at the university, Dr. Joanne Dawson. But I also have two Pulsar Astronomer Supervisors at CAS uh, with Cher Dye, who is my primary supervisor, and George Hobbs, who is a bit of a Pulsar Astronomy guru, yep. as a, another supervisor. So I shouldn't be able to put a step wrong with my research, hopefully.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. You're in a very privileged position there now. What is a timeline that you're working at for your research project through to the completion of your Master's of Research and then the likelihood of going on to your PhD. What's the timeline you're looking at at this
1: stage, Tommy? Well, I'm hoping to finish my research, this current project for my Master's, no later than March, but hopefully as early as October, and then start my PhD project Early next year, once I get my results from my thesis, yeah, regardless, early next year, hopefully.
0: Excellent. Look, I should have sent this question to you prior, but I have to ask it anyway, because we're very much still in a publish or perish environment. Are you working on a paper to go with your GPU galactic plane survey research?
1: Yeah, actually, one of the one of my goals going into my master's was to not only complete my thesis, but also produce some science that I could submit for publication. So in terms of that, it is not unheard of, but relatively unique for a candidate in my program to uh, submit a publication, maybe one in three or only one in four. But I'm hoping to go on to with my PhD and complete that as a thesis by publication.
0: I'm looking forward to reading that. That'll be fantastic. Now, the mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or equity, diversity or our quest for new knowledge. The mic's all yours.
1: It's hard to nail down, to be honest. There are so many issues, particularly as it deals with science, just for science sake, and the curiosity of humanity. And I I think one of the big ones is, and a lot of your guests have said it, is the science denialism and questioning the point of it all when as I said before, science for the sake of science and just sheer curiosity is the reason it's there. And the things that we discover today, we might not realize what we can use them for for a hundred years. And when I think Hertz discovered radio waves, there was no idea of what the utility of those could be. But today, without radio waves, we wouldn't have radio astronomy, Wi Fi and a lot of the wireless technology that we have. And so some of the things today that people think are a waste of money may be the breakthroughs that save lives or transform human civilization in the future. And so I think, particularly in light of the recent federal election and the climate change denial, there needs to be more done in terms of not only funding science, but understanding that money spent on science is rarely wasted.
0: So true. Yes, Tommy. Blue sky research pays big dividends. Now, is there
1: anything that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Well, last week I actually went to a workshop run by Osgrav down at Swinburne University, and pulsar timing is very exciting in its use, searching for the stochastic gravitational wave background. And I know there are some new papers coming out about that. So keep an eye out for that.
0: Okay, a word from the wise. Thank you very much, Tommy. Now, thank you so much, Tommy Marshman. On behalf of our listeners, it's been fabulous speaking with you and we'll be following your career with great interest. Thank you so much for your time and expertise.
1: Thanks for having me, Brendan. It was really a privilege.
0: Okay, see you. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, mate. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the next two weeks?
2: Quite a bit's going to be going on in the sky in the next two weeks. To start off with our old friend Fleet Mercury, which has until recently been hiding out in the morning skies, will return to the evening skies. Although initially it's going to be very low to the horizon and you'll need a very clear level horizon to see it an hour after sunset it rises higher and higher into the sky chasing our friend mars now mars is still visible in the late twilight readily visible an hour after sunset although it is quite low so you should have a reasonably clear level horizon to catch it Uh, it's in gemini at the moment and is going to be passing close to two of the bright stars of gemini not the brightest stars the twins but some of the accessory stars, so it'll be quite good to look out for. On the 5th, Mars is very close to the thin crescent moon, so that'll be a very interesting view to have. At this time, Mercury is just grazing the horizon an hour after sunset, and so uh, you might be best looking out, looking 45 minutes after sunset rather than an hour if you want to catch all three of them. And although the, the pair are best on the 5th, On the 6th, the Moon and Mars make a nice line-up. Again, if you're looking 45 minutes after sunset, somewhere with a nice flat horizon, you'll be able to see Mercury, Mars and the Moon all nicely lined up. Now, as I said, Mercury will continue to rise into the evening sky, chasing Mars. And then on the 18th, Mars and Mercury at their closest. So they're basically less than a finger-width apart and so we'll look Very nice, both visually and with binoculars. At this time, Mercury will be brighter than Mars. Wow. We've been quite used to Mars being very bright most of the past year and a half, but now Mars has faded quite a bit and Mercury will be brighter than Mars. And then after that close approach on the 18th, Mercury will be above Mars.
0: That's fantastic, Ian.
2: It is fantastic. It'll be very nice watching, especially if you've got somewhere That's nice and level and clear. I have uh, the ocean horizon to the west, so it'll be very good for me. Now, if you turn your eyes to the eastern horizon, the brightest object above the eastern horizon, nestling underneath the curl of the constellation of Scorpius, is Jupiter. Now, Jupiter comes to opposition this month and on the 11th, when it's brightest and biggest as visible from Earth. Now, because Jupiter is quite... Big in, in telescopes, anyway, and because it's the variation, in its orbit is not as, as dramatic as that of Mars. You don't see a really huge difference between opposition and its first, but nonetheless, Jupiter will be very nice in telescopes now. Uh, at opposition, Jupiter is visible the entire night long, rising as twilight ends and setting as twilight starts. So you'll have lots of night time to watch Jupiter. For us in the Southern Hemisphere, this is occurring in winter. So we've got lots of clear, still skies. Through a telescope, Jupiter's bands and uh, Great Red Spot are always uh, interesting. Even in in a small telescope, you'll be able to see the uh, moons shuttling about. And this month we have a number of eclipses and occultations as the moon and their sh- moons and their shadows go in front of Jupiter, or the moon goes behind Jupiter, so there's lots of lots of moon drama going on in the next fortnight.
0: Now, while we're talking about Jupiter, Ian, are we going to lose the big red spot? Well, that's what
2: I was about to talk to you about next. Amateurs looking at the Great Red Spot have noticed a phenomenon which they have been calling unraveling, where large plumes of material seem to be spinning off the Great Red Spot. Now, the Great Red Spot's been around for 200 years. It's dimmed and brightened occasionally during this time. It may entirely be possible that this is the final hurrah of the Great Red Spot, but all the reports I've seen say that it's still persisting. It's looking quite dramatic with, uh, with trails and material coming off the Red Spot at the moment. Uh, it looks like what's happened is another storm has impacted mm-hmm. it. And so, what we may be seeing is a battle of a, of the storms with one storm dominating over the other. But as I said, at the moment, the great red Spot's still there, even though it is, seems to be shedding material. Uh, this is a perfect opportunity at uh, position for amateurs, with even modest telescopes to uh, monitor what's happening with the with the great red Spot. The latest Juno pass has just occurred the images from that pass are now available. So that's something for those people who are assembling Juno images to try and tell us in the next few weeks or so. Excellent. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the sky for both people with with un-oved eyes and uh, with binoculars and telescopes. And if you've got a medium-sized telescope with decent optics, watching the great red spot and uh, following what's happening, with that um, you know, mighty storm is going to be a fantastic thing to do over the next few weeks. On the 16th, the Moon and Jupiter are close enough, about a couple of finger widths apart. Uh, they, but they also form a triangle with Antares, the brightest red star in Scorpio. So that'll be a, a nice construction to see in the skies. But let's not forget Saturn. Saturn comes to opposition next month. Right now, Saturn is really excellent in small telescopes. It's uh, nicely visible in the late evening sky and your best views will be in the late evening to early morning. Something else is happening in the morning skies. Venus, which has been our beacon, is slowly sinking away. If you get up in the mornings at at the moment, you'll still be able to see three bright planets. Jupiter is low in the west, Saturn is in the northwest and Venus is right low on the... Uh, northeastern horizon. Uh, It's sinking lower and we'll soon lose it in the twilight.
0: Very good. Now Ian because we're losing Venus as a morning star and it's been called the morning star and the evening star, does that mean that later we'll be seeing Venus as an evening star? It will later
2: on this year. It will become the uh, evening star once again.
0: Very good. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? Yes. In the theme
2: of what's up in the sky, a little while ago, uh, SpaceX launched the Starlink constellation of satellites. This caused a fair bit of consternation because they were significantly brighter than we had expected them to be. And there were quite dramatic, a train of uh, satellites, all following one after the other, easily visible to the unaided eye. They're now fading quite a bit and they're beginning to spread out as they head towards their final orbits, but you're still having significant flashes and sometimes the lead satellite in the train is significantly brighter. So this has caused a fair bit of consternation in the astronomical community because these 60 are the harbouringers of a constellation which will eventually include almost 12,000 satellites. We already have a fair few uh, satellites in orbit, so the consternation is that the, the values remain significantly brighter than we imagined, and you have twelve thousand of them crossing the sky could potentially mean that we'll lose a wide range of different kinds of astronomy simply because you'll have relatively bright satellites crossing almost every potential field in the sky. One calculation was that when you have the final proposed constellation in orbit, you'll have something on the order of 50 satellites crossing the sky at any one time. So there was a lot of batting around and and argument about this with a variety of moral and, and quite a few less informed opinions on this. One of the more spectacular ones came from Elon Musk himself, that you wouldn't be able to see the um, satellites because they'd be uh, crossing in nighttime when it's dark. And I don't know about you, but I've been out in the uh, evening skies uh, watching satellites and they don't particularly care about it being at night. But what he was trying to get across was that these satellites would would, uh, enter into Earth's shadow and not be visible when someone pointed out that you could watch the uh, International Space Station for quite some time into the night, and it was incredibly bright, uh, his his reply was, the International Space Station is extremely giant and has lights. (laughs) Now, the International Space Station is very bright, uh, not not because it's extremely giant, or has lights uh, but because it has large um, solar panels which reflect the uh, Sun's light back to Earth. And Starlink it may be noticed also has large um, solar panels. The thing I wanted to point out here is why do we see satellites? There is a very good point that satellites in low Earth orbit should intersect with Earth's shadow. Now as you know uh, Earth casts the shadow and uh, Earth's shadow is exactly why we can see the um, see lunar eclipses, but Earth's shadow is conical. And so this is why every night you don't see a lunar eclipse. You only see it when the uh, moon crosses Earth's shadow, which only occurs approximately twice a year. Now, of course, Earth's shadow being a cone will be broader uh, towards Earth. So obviously um, satellites at various points in their orbit The lower the orbit, there's more uh, shadow that you will cross. But the Earth is also tilted. So the shadow is angled away from certain parts of uh, the night sky, depending where you are. Now, having said that, exactly how bright they are is still undetermined. At the moment, the train seems to have a bright leader. And the followers are quite dim, around about magnitude 6. Now, this is the first 60 satellites, and again, they, uh, they're, they're, most of them are not yet in their final orbits, and uh, they will be all spread out in the sky. There's something on the order of 12,000 satellites are going to are proposed to be put up, and currently we've only got about 5,000 satellites in the sky. So this is a, a significant increase as well. Many of those satellites are placed where they're not going to be very bright at all. So what happens to amateur astronomy? It depends on how bright they are in their final orbits, but you can imagine, for example, if you're out on the dark sky sites, and we talked last time about the designated dark sky reserves, and you have something like 50 unaided eye visible satellites going across the sky at any one time, this changes our very conception of the sky. And the sky is no longer the natural phenomenon uh, that we're, we were familiar with, but is now dominated by man-made objects. But let's say they're dimmer, let's say they're on the order of 6th to 7th magnitude, which won't be picked up unless you're under really dark sky conditions, and even then would be very hard for a person to see as an amateur. But we now have all these satellites crossing the fields of view of both major astronomical telescopes, but also amateur telescopes. It's entirely possible to mitigate the impact of these kinds of satellites. But uh, from my point of view is, why didn't they ask any astronomers first? It's a bit of a, bit of an issue. Of course, we'll have to see how it goes. And if you, if anyone wants to try and pick up the Starlink uh, trains, Um, You can uh, find them through uh, uh, orbits on CalSky and on uh, heavens above. Just type heavens above or CalSky into your favourite internet web browser and they will give you predictions for these trains. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. Will we just have another bunch of faint satellites which will annoy professional astronomers immensely? Or uh, will we have something which potentially changes our view of the night sky forever? Our skies will no longer be quite the same. If we're looking at things that are in in low Earth orbit up to 550 kilometres, Starlink dominates. There's only about 5,000 satellites and all other bits of 500 satellites in, in orbit. But if we look at uh, up, only up to 550 kilometres in true low-Earth orbit, um, then there's only uh, nearly 2,000 satellites and their rocket stages. Uh, there's also other various bits of debris, um, but they're all sort of uh, less, than millimeter, uh, less than a couple of millimetres in size and so they're not particularly going to be problematic in terms of visibility. But uh, the vast majority of, of, of those objects Something like 9,000 objects compared to 2,000 objects is going to be, um, Starlink satellites. And they're potentially, those will be potentially the brightest ones. Uh, if we go up to, um, uh, 11,000 kilometers, and this is above the International Space Station. And, uh, if I'm correct in my memory, it's also higher than the Hubble Space Telescope. There's about uh, 7,500 uh, satellites and rocket stages, and there will be about 12,000 of the Starlink objects. And there will be about 12,000 of the Starlink objects up at that height. Quite problematic. Actually, I think the, the actual figure for the, the Starlink satellites that will be above Hubble is, is more in the order of 5,000 objects. The Hubble Space Telescope is at 568 kilometres. So that means a significant proportion of the Starlink satellites will be above the Hubble Space Telescope and can potentially interfere with its observations.
0: Yes, well, I'm sure that's a story that we'll be coming back to over the next months and years, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been fabulous speaking with you again.
2: And it's been wonderful speaking with you and sharing the glories of the night sky, be they both natural and possibly artificial. See you, mate. Yeah, bye.
0: Here is the Astrophys News. In a paper published today in Nature, another fabulous example of how archival data can be cleverly interrogated to lead to new, great discoveries. The paper is titled a cool accretion disk around the galactic center black hole. That's our galactic center. Lead author, PhD student Lena Murchikova and her colleagues used data gathered in 2015 by the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, ELMA, to discover a thin rotating accretion disk of material extremely close to the black hole that is sending Streams of material spiralling inwards. Earlier studies had revealed a more distant disk of warm gas further away from our black hole, which may feed to a new found cooler disk. We have detected a number of supermassive black holes with bright hot disks of orbiting gases around them, but up until now, SAG A-star Sagittarius A-star, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our Milky Way, has not shown much at all. So while there's still much more to learn about Sag A-star, kudos to Merchikova and her team. Next, by ABC News. A group of international astronomers say they have discovered a forbidden planet Closely Orbiting a Star. I just love these headlines. The discovery of exoplanet NGTS-4b was revealed in a study published by the Royal Astronomical Society this week and has challenged our understanding of stars and solar systems. Here's the key points. This team of international astronomers found the exoplanet NGTS-4b by using the transit method and looking for a dip in light in front of the star. The planet exists in a Neptunian desert zone where previous studies found no gaseous planets. It was found in this Neptunian desert, previously thought to be inhospitable to gaseous Neptune-like planets. Because this area receives such strong heat and radiation, it was thought planets would not be able to retain their gaseous atmosphere. It would simply evaporate, leaving only a rocky core. But NGTS-4b still has its gaseous atmosphere. So the researchers believe the planet may have moved into the zone relatively recently, in the last million years. It's about three times the size of Earth and 920 light years away from our planet. And to finish up, for those who want to have a look for the Starlink satellites passing over their home, go to com forward slash Starlinkme. That's S-T-A-R-L-I-N-K-M-E, all lowercase, all one word. And then just put in your hometown or your city and the website will tell you when you will be able to see Starlink. Lucky you. We'll see you in two weeks. Yeah. Ready,